0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
3: This is a CBC Podcast. Are you a, a dark meat person or a white meat person? What's your preference and why? So that's a complicated question.
4: Dark meat is juicier and tastes better and it's got vitamins not found in white meat. It's
5: less work when you eat white meat because dark meat, you have to get dirty and you have to take
6: the bones out. I'm a dark meat thigh guy. Chicken breast is good. Yes, please. Sauce. But you'll kind of see, unless you really soak it like for a day, you let it sit and marinate it's not gonna have the same flavor as with the dark meat. It's just not the only thing. I think the wrong thing to say is I only eat white meat. White meat has its uses, just like everything does. Hearts, Pope's nose, neck, feet. The whole bird evolved so we could eat the whole damn thing.
7: Chicken breasts are almost anonymous food. A sick person's
5: food,
3: maybe. What do you eat at home? Do you eat dark dark meat, white meat, whole chickens? I
5: really like the chicken nuggets that are shaped like dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, bone in, skin on, chicken thighs. Is there anything better? Nothing better. They're the best.
3: From CBC, this is The Fridge Light. The hidden stories behind the food you eat. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. On episode one, dark meat, white meat. I need to say this straight off the top. I am a dark meat person. Boneless, skinless chicken breast, I'd rather eat cotton balls. But dark meat people like me, we are way outnumbered. North America is white meat country. For pretty much as long as there's been MTV and Chicken McNuggets, the boneless, skinless chicken breast has been king. Just try buying a bit of the dark stuff at your local chain sandwich shop or fast food counter. Have you ever noticed how many restaurants advertise all white meat? The rest of the bird, the legs and thighs, the chicken industry can barely give it away. So, here's a question. If we only eat the white meat from every chicken, what are the unintended consequences? The battle between dark meat and white meat, and do not be fooled. It is a battle. This battle touches almost every part of North America's economy and culture in ways that,
2: well, they surprise the hell out of me. Our family would get a whole chicken and uh, roast it, and uh, I would always ask for the drumstick. Back then, uh, the that's only thing you could
1: I remember when I was a child small small. was we were always after the wishbone. So everybody wanted to get the wishbone so you could break it and make your wish.
4: My parents cooked elaborate dinners chicken cordon bleu, chicken kiev. I remember both of those with like gooey cheese and ham. And
8: we moved chicken. to Canada when I was five. My mom and dad would buy whole chickens from a local farmer, they would cut them up themselves. My mom would use the back and the feet for making soup,
0: and we uh, I am the oldest grandchild on both sides of my family, and that means that I was brought up as a princess, I have to admit. And uh, my relatives catered to my every whim. Now, I was not a picky eater, but nevertheless, people would give me white meat because I think that was the delicacy. At least that was the, the way that I took it.
3: That's Marcy Palshat, a neuroscientist from the Monnell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia. She studies why people prefer certain foods.
0: If somebody gives you something as a prize or as a reward, that makes you value it even more. So I grew up liking white meat, definitely preferring white meat to dark meat. Marcy's family,
3: they weren't so different. For a lot of the 20th century, white meat was a delicacy. It was a delicacy because, first of all, chickens then weren't like today. They had normal bird-sized breasts instead of enormous ones. And
0: second? When I grew up, maybe you could buy a chicken that was already cut up But most of the time, people bought whole chickens.
3: Well into the 1960s, cut-up and deboned chicken, they just weren't that much of a thing. If you needed a piece of breast, you bought an entire bird. As for cut-up chicken, it was considered a novelty item. They actually used that term, novelty item. And even after cut-up pieces did catch on, eating poultry wasn't an everyday affair. Okay, here's what your mom and dad's book says about chicken breasts that ineffable delicacy the breast of chicken or suprême de volaille fancy French name is further refined by removing the anyway it goes on and on on. but it's like the breast was a big deal
4: yeah I, I mean I remember my first year at university one of my roommates chicken was a luxury we would go buy groceries and she looked at us like we were crazy for buying chicken because she thought it was such an extravagant luxury
3: That's my neighbor Carolyn. She lives a couple doors up from me. So, a few years ago, Carolyn gave me a stack of gourmet cookbooks from the 1950s and 60s. Her parents were downsizing. They wanted to clear them out. She passed them on. And honestly, I hadn't really gone through the books until a couple weeks ago because they're filled with these insanely fancy recipes. They treat chicken as a special occasion food. In one of them, you literally coat 25 chicken breasts with foie gras and truffles in this jellied French sauce. And then you shellac it all in a layer of aspic, which, if you've never heard of aspic, it's like homestyle jello made with hooves. In another one of those books, there's a recipe for a dish called Breast of Chicken Queen Elizabeth. And it opens with the sentence, remove the breasts from three chickens, each weighing from two and three quarters to three pounds, and trim off the skin. I'd been going through these books, trying to get a handle on what chicken used to be like. And then, the other day, I saw Carolyn walking down the street. I'm just going to sit here and throw a microphone in your face. Because I want to talk about your mom and her cooking. And we're talking about chicken breasts. And, And you say to me, well, haven't you ever... Boned a
4: chicken breast? No,
3: I've never boned a chicken breast. That's ridiculous.
4: That's how I learned to cook. Was boning chicken breasts, and I'm—I can't believe you never did that. Okay,
3: so Carolyn, my neighbor, is not old.
4: No, I'm not old.
3: <laughs> she says that emphatically, but you're not old. I've never boned a chicken breast in my life. So, so why would you ever do that?
4: Because it was cheaper to buy chicken breasts with bones than not. That seemed like the right thing to do. At the time, everybody did it.
3: How do you bone a chicken breast?
4: I don't actually know if there was a process. You kind of wiggle the knife along the edge of the bone and. Take the breast meat off, and then there's like a wishbone-shaped thing that you have to work your way around. It's been a while now, but that's how I learned.
3: So chicken was A, expensive, B, luxurious, and C, a total pain in the ass, because nobody had discovered yet that you could build processing plants to remove all the bones. Up until the 1980s, you know what people ate when they wanted cheap and easy protein? They ate pork and beef. But there were some exceptions. While nobody was looking, the boneless chicken breasts started to come out of crazy gourmet cookbooks and into real life. The airlines, for instance. This is pretty much impossible to believe today, but airlines used to serve really good food. They were famous for it.
2: We'll show you.
0: We'll show you why this continental wide-bodied DC 10 is more fun. This is our
2: new first-class lounge where we have an assorted buffet.
0: In coach, we'll show you our pub. Yes, the pub is back.
3: And that food included that fine dining delicacy boneless chicken breasts. One particular breast cut called the supreme, or the supreme if you want to say it properly, it became so closely identified with the golden age of air travel that even today it's still sometimes called the airline cut. To
2: make this the nicest flight you've ever flown.
3: Another early adopter, a businessman from Atlanta, Georgia, named S. Truett Cathy. In the early 1960s, he started buying excess airline chicken breasts. He fried them up, stuck them into white bread sandwiches, Within a few years, his experiment became the fried chicken sandwich empire called Chick-fil-A.
7: Am I being recorded? Just I, I'm minute?
3: just getting a little a little atmosphere, so okay. don't worry about it. No,
7: no, it. that's fine. I did make three little copies of something. Sure. Let me just sure.
3: A couple days after talking with Carolyn, I went to visit her mother, Barbara Felstner. I'm too young to have ever had to debone a chicken. In my lifetime, they've always just come that way, so I wanted to see it for myself. I brought you a couple things. Here, I'm going Please. to put that there. These need. are Barbara's old cookbooks, the ones she passed on to me. She hasn't seen them in a few years. Oh,
7: my goodness. Gosh, yes. And th- I don't know whether this has still an inscription. That's my mother. This is what my mother used for dinner parties.
3: Barbara, for the record, is pretty much the platonic ideal of the 1960s homemaker. She's kind to a fault. You could talk with her for hours. She wears a gray cashmere sweater. In her living room, there's an enormous and minutely detailed wooden dollhouse that Barbara built herself over the past, oh, I'm going to guess 40 years. It even has tiny electric reading lamps. So
7: this, this one would have been my mother's. 1958, it says, was when she got it.
3: What was your mother's name?
7: Virginia. I find that so much chicken is off the bone now and skinless, boneless, which means for me personality less. I would rather have a whole chicken, and roast it or stuff it, or that to me has a lot more flavor.
3: So I brought you a chicken. Oh my God! Do you think? Do you think you could show me how to bone a breast?
7: Bone a breast of chicken? Yeah. I can try. I don't know whether I whether I. I can do it the proper way, but...
3: Let's let's see what we can do. I would love to see it. All right. Um,
7: oh, oh, a whole chicken? Oh, what is this? Oh, a whole chicken? You want me to bone the whole chicken?
3: You don't have to bone the whole thing. Oh, God, let's anyway. see if we can take some breasts off. Barbara's got this can-do attitude. That chicken I brought her, it's out of its bag and on her cutting board in about 20 seconds flat.
7: Well, that's kind of a like pretty good chicken, actually.
3: It's not bad. no. Comes on a styrofoam tray, of course. Of
7: course, everything does. All right, let me get a cutting board.
3: By the end of the 1970s, women like Barbara started becoming a total anomaly. People didn't want to have to cut up whole chickens. They were too busy going to work and doing step aerobic classes and listening to I Will Survive on AM radio.
7: Everybody in the family works today. I had time. And that was a real, real luxury. You know, if you want to do... The boning, or you want to do something that will take a long time prep. You know, I, I don't think any very many people have that today. That is
3: a tiny little
4: knife. It is.
3: The other thing people were doing in the late 1970s was freaking out about saturated
2: fat.
4: That certainly was something we were afraid of. Yeah, there was everything had to be low fat
2: and lean. The white meat has less fat, slightly less fat than the dark meat. So people said they wanted that white meat and, of course, skinless has to be skinless, because so, the evil fat, it can't have any fat. So chicken breasts were lean, I guess. Skinless, boneless white meat, that was the product of choice.
7: I'm sorry to waste all this recording
2: time. <laughs> it's not wasted
3: at all. Here's another thing that really jumps out in retrospect.
7: Probably, I would go in with my fingers.
3: When you look through Barbara's books from the 1950s, the recipes tell you to wipe down the chicken with a damp cloth. You're going right down the breastbone. I'm
7: going right down the breastbone.
3: By the 1980s, wiping down a raw chicken with your kitchen cloth, that was pretty much a death wish. People were terrified of salmonella, the only thing more dangerous than fat. In 1985, hundreds of people in New York were hospitalized from just one salmonella outbreak. Nine of them died. For the processed white meat industry, well... This was a market opportunity. Because unlike the whole chickens that do-it-yourselfers like Barbara butchered at home, packaged chicken breasts were seen at the time as the safe bet. One meat man even called them 100% bacteria-free. They were the perfect solution. Low fat, low effort, and totally guaranteed not to kill you and your entire family. And all you had to do was peel away the cellophane wrapper and toss them in a pan. ...around
7: the with the skin... And God knows whether this is the way somebody else would do this. this is the way I would do it.
3: I don't know. Watching Barbara, I can't help feeling like maybe we all lost something. i'm I'm in awe though. This is not something that that I was ever taught to do.
7: Really? There. And then you just would if you want the skin off, which I would probably leave on, but you can just peel.
0: Look at that. Skin
3: on. It's beautiful. It's just hard. It's a perfect, perfect breast, you skin
7: on. And you've never done that? No.
3: Watching her debone that chicken I'm breast, sure, you on. need a knife and a cutting board, but it's one of the least complicated kitchen jobs I've ever seen.
7: <laughs> done. Thank you. You're, you're more That's than fantastic. welcome. Now, do I get to keep the chicken?
3: I, the chicken is yours. <laughs> it's yours. It's absolutely <laughs> yours. <laughs> At some point in the 1980s, nobody seems to know when or where exactly. And by the way, I spent weeks trying to find this. But at some point in the early 1980s in either Gainesville, Florida or Morton, Mississippi, or maybe somewhere in Montana, chicken companies started opening giant, boneless, skinless chicken breast plants.
2: That was all they did. White meat. Before then, people did debone breast meat, but it was a small portion of a processing plant but then people decided that an entire poultry slaughter processing plant could be dedicated to deboning breast meat. This is Paul Ajo, a big deal U.S. poultry economist. And at that point, it was very expensive. And uh, observers like me commented that uh, you're producing a very expensive product and I wonder if you're going to be able to sell it. But as you go from 1985 to now, the price of that deboned breast meat went down by 90%. How, how is that possible? That, that figure is stunning. Well, one, one you can probably guess, and that's economies of scale, so a lot larger uh, processing plants. But the, the other less obvious one is that the chickens themselves got bigger. So back in 1985, a large chicken might be weigh 5 pounds live, Now a large chicken weighs 10 pounds, so the chicken doubled in size and the percentage of white meat increased substantially from 15 to 25 or more.
3: And this is the point in the story where the unintended consequences start piling up. Well, chickens are, are uh, bred
1: just like about any other animal. That is that uh, the principles of the breeding is just breed the best to the best, and you get the best. And so as consumer demands uh, change... Well, this is did, Dr. Bill did, uh, Muir. He's a poultry geneticist with Purdue University in Indiana. ...do what they want. And so in the case of uh, uh, white meat or breast meat, one just uh,
3: literally, <laughs> you just pick up the bird and you feel its breast. And if it's a big one, that's the one you keep. The thing about meat chickens, they're living, breathing breathing Barnyard Mr. Potato Heads. Through the miracle of old-fashioned crossbreeding, geneticists can swap almost any part of their bodies, in or out. Geneticists are always listen to what the consumer wants,
1: and uh, sometimes the consumer isn't, you know, the homeowner. Sometimes the consumer is the intermediary. In this case, it would be somebody like Subway um, and McDonald's, because they're actually feeding the world. The fast food chains are consuming a tremendous amount of poultry products, and they're they're really looking for a product that is easily processed and is uniform, because you know they have standards for how they cook meat. And in case of Subway, you know, you get your your sandwich with the shaved chicken, so they want to be able to make lunch meat out of it. The consciousness of our health, along with the Subways and McDonald's of the world being able to process it, just kind of came together in a happy harmony and, and requested
3: or demanded from the breeders that they wanted large breasts. Bill focuses there on sliced sandwich meats, but an even more important driver for that big breast meat push... It was the advent of the McDonald's Chicken McNugget. Introducing
7: Chicken McNuggets.
3: The launch of McNuggets in 1983 was so monumentally, record-smashingly successful that pretty much every fast food chain and packaged food company in North America had to have their own version.
0: They're great. No bones. I love it. I dug it. Ooh, new Chicken McNuggets.
3: Within just a few years, Chicken Nuggets alone consumed a full 10% of the U.S.'s entire chicken production. And just like with sandwich meat, if you wanted to make chicken nuggets as cheaply and easily as possible, you needed chickens with ever bigger breasts. The modern bird, what has happened is that breast has, has quadrupled, maybe, maybe it's increased ten times as huge. So here's how that's gone. The breast meat of a big modern chicken, just the breast meat, nothing else, is literally bigger than entire chickens were in Barbara Felstiner's day. Which actually creates
1: a problem for the birds sometimes in that the, the breast is so large that it will drag on the ground. Sometimes and
3: there are other problems, like rampant, drop-dead heart attacks and meat quality issues with creepy names like woody breast and green muscle disease. And they're directly linked to this endless push to get more and more white meat out of every bird. But while this might all sound a little apocalyptic, the upside's been pretty astonishing. In the space of a single generation, the North American poultry industry completely transformed the chicken breast. Big Chicken accomplished precisely what big industries are supposed to do. They took a high-priced luxury product, the sort of meat that fancy cookbooks waxed poetic about, and they turned it, as if by magic, into everyday food. They gave the people, ordinary, not rich, working-class people, exactly the thing they wanted, and in quantities nobody had ever dreamt of. They made white meat so cheap that in 2003, McDonald's reformulated its McNuggets to remove every last stubborn trace of dark meat without even raising the price. And the new white meat McNugget? Almost overnight, sales spiked by 35%. All those chickens though, nine billion of them every year, it's not like they suddenly stopped growing legs and thighs.
2: You know, dark meat. The U.S. poultry industry lives or dies on the price of deboned chicken breast. That's Palaho again. It's fundamental, and part of it. Part of the reason is that that dark meat is so cheap that the the uh, deboned breast has to carry the weight. When the industry lives or dies on the price of boneless breast meat,
3: what is the dark meat worth? What do we do with it?
2: If we're talking about large chickens that are deboned, about one third of that dark meat is eaten in the United States, and about two-thirds is exported. The demand is minimal here for it. We eat about a third of it, and at a very low price.
0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
2: And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. In
3: 1991, the industry found a solution to that problem. And for a while, at least, everybody thought it was a win-win. Because North America's aversion to dark meat, we are the odd ones out. The rest of the world loves dark meat. So we shipped it off to places like Russia, China, we shipped it to South Africa, and we sold it for rock-bottom prices. In Russia, in the early 1990s, people used to call chicken legs bush legs in honor of President George Bush, the first one. But these countries began to realize, one after another, that all that North American dark meat was putting their own chicken farmers out of business. And so they started blocking chicken imports. And then the U.S. would retaliate and block something from those countries. Let's call them the chicken wars. In the early 2000s, the situation got so bad, there was so much dark meat piling up, that the U.S. government bought up entire warehouses of the stuff, and they fed it to prison inmates. And today... Today, the chicken industry, they've gone all pollo loco.
2: Now our biggest uh, market is Mexico. For dark meat. They bought more than a billion pounds last year. A billion pounds. They, They buy as much dark meat from us as we eat. How important is that single country, how important is Mexico to the broiler industry? If Mexico were to decide to cut us off like Russia did back in the day, the leg quarter's price would drop to virtually zero. It would be all. People would be rendering them.
3: Is there so much value placed on the white meat right now that the dark meat doesn't carry enough economic weight? It doesn't pay for itself. That's correct. There's
9: one other way we tried to get rid of all that dark meat. And this part? There is nothing wrong with the dark meat. This is a personal favorite of mine. I have nothing against the dark meat. It's just you know, It was just the, the market demanding for uh, white meat. There was a surplus of this dark meat. And at a certain point, we need to find you know, a, a solution for this. And that's the reason. It was just in response to a market demand for white meat. That's all.
3: This is Mirko
9: Betti, a food scientist from Italy. Betti works at the University of Alberta. We start with the raw material, dark meat. So we remove the skin, obviously, remove the bones. Then we mix them with water, so one part of meat and five parts of water. And we do a homogenization process. After that, there is a I realize this probably sounds complicated, but what
3: Betti did was he made a chopped up dark meat smoothie. And then he spun it in a centrifuge
9: at something like 5,000 RPM. And we have an intermediate layer of uh, soluble proteins. We discard the fat. That indeterminate layer of soluble proteins
3: he mentions? It's dark meat pretty much, but without the dark meat color or the fat, which, in other words, now it was
9: white meat. Uh, so Mirko Betty's discovery was that you can science the dark out of chicken. And at this point, we have a wet protein concentrate and then freeze the products and sell it as a block of 10 kilograms of protein concentrate, or eventually these products can spray dry, so we remove all the water, and we can produce a protein powder, so a protein isolate in technical terms. These products can then be used in the preparation of many food items, uh, particularly processed uh, meat products. And to be totally fair to Mirko, he's
3: a dark meat guy, but his job is to find solutions to poultry problems. What do you
9: get after the protein coagulates? You get a protein concentrate. is a white um Coagulate so so it's similar to a very viscous protein matrix, so a sort of jelly material uh, which can be a tofu just to give you a, a better um, similarity with products already existing on the market. So a sort of tofu. What does it taste like? It tastes like uh, uh, it tastes like chicken yeah okay, so listen, all you white meat people out there I'm just gonna
3: come out and call it. That wet protein concentrate slash viscous protein matrix slash jelly material, that stuff, that stuff is 100% on you.
5: People who know poultry know that dark meat is the best meat. But they also know that the meat that all consumers want is white meat.
3: There's one more unintended consequence to white meat mania. And if you're a food person, you'll probably think this one's the worst. All that white meat can't help but fundamentally change the way North America thinks about food and taste.
5: Are you really going to sit there and hold that like that? I am. I know. It's awful, isn't it? (laughs) All right. This is super fun. Uh, I love it. We're just sitting on the couch talking about chicken.
3: This is Elspeth Copeland. Starting in the 1990s, right around peak white meat, she was a product developer for one of the big national grocery chains.
5: I've worked on all kinds of poultry products. Lots of frozen meals, pot pies, barbecue chicken, in-store barbecue chickens, that kind of stuff. And deli meats that use chicken, hot dogs, bacon, you name it. In a recipe dish, like a frozen food product, you wanted to be able to say all white meat. That was sort of the best claim that you could make for a product.
3: When Elspeth was developing chicken products, she and her fellow food developers used all sorts of little tricks to make the stuff look and taste like something. One classic technique was to give it fake grill marks.
5: When consumers opened their box and peeled back the cellophane, they would see those lovely pieces of chicken right on the top and have the impression that the product was filled with chicken.
3: Okay, you kind of rolled your eyes a little bit when you said grilled chicken. Why'd you roll your eyes?
5: Well, because it's not really grilled. It's grilled in quotation marks. It usually goes under some kind of a heat lamp or something to give the impression uh, of the of the dark stripes across the, you know, there aren't hundreds of people with markers drawing lines, but they're, they're little grill marks that are that are put on the chicken as they go through their conveyor belts in the factory.
3: And white meat, even though it was becoming cheaper every year, it was still way more pricey to work with than dark meat. So one common cost-saving trick, they got their white meat from spent laying hens, old chickens from the egg industry. And?
5: It's maybe not all chicken, but it's all white meat that's used.
3: Hold on, what do you mean it's maybe not all chicken?
5: Well, a lot of the sort of formed chicken products... Uh, you know, patties and nuggets and things like that are made with a combination of real chicken, real white meat and things like soy proteins, water, starches, salt that, you know, help to bring down cost while still giving that perception of white meat and help in the forming process. You know, chicken comes in some weird shapes that you don't see in, on farms. And
3: Dinosaurs. Need, yeah,
5: exactly. And you need uh, you need a little help from some technological ingredients in order to do that. Oh,
3: my God. <laughs> Another trick they used, I'll let Elspeth explain it. And by the way, you're about to hear my voice go really high.
5: I think a lot of consumers have actually maybe never experienced what real chicken tastes like for north american consumers chicken is a carrier it's a conduit to other things whether it's going to be breaded and fried or put in a sandwich or put in a pasta the chicken itself doesn't carry a whole lot of flavor even to the point that often you know there are manufacturers that will inject chicken with chicken broth um and then cook it (laughs) what (laughs) yeah um They'll inject chicken with chicken broth or chicken flavor and then cook it to enhance the chicken, the chicken flavor. I love the way you're looking at me, like I have six heads.
3: Chicken now flavored with more chicken.
5: Yeah, now flavored with real chicken.
3: <laughs> All that intervention aside, boneless, skinless chicken breasts, they are changing us.
0: So we're familiar with a big, big chunk of meat that, frankly, is fairly bland.
3: That's Marcy Pelsha, again, the neuroscientist from Philadelphia.
0: On the one hand, I guess that it does lend itself to all different kinds of food preparation. But on the other hand, that's that's what we expect. Chicken to be. And I don't know that most people would be happy with the flavor of a real chicken anymore.
3: And that, right there, that is how white meat has maintained its dominance for all these years. But the thing is, while dark meat's been down all this time, it's never been entirely out. There's even reason in the last few years to think that dark meat just might get its revenge. It's a Saturday night coming up on 10 o'clock in Little Jamaica, a neighbourhood just north of downtown Toronto. The first thing that hits you is the smell of the air. It's sweet with the scent of jerk spice and sizzling chicken. As you get closer, you see the clouds of smoke drifting out off the sidewalk and into the road. There's a line of oil drum barbecues all of them crowded with jerk chicken. The place called Hot Pot has the biggest crowd.
10: What's your name? Uh, Wayne. Wayne Roberts. I start about 6.30 or so outside here. And um, I'll probably be here until about 4.30, 5 o'clock. This is where the chicken
3: legs and thighs go.
10: It's better with the bones. It tastes better. It's just sweeter. You're not going to get boneless um, jerk chicken unless you go to the hotel. <laughs> That's why you're getting all dirty. Is it, at the hotels? <laughs> but not here. We kind of do it like back home, you know. What do you mostly serve here? Dark meat, white meat? Most dark. Meat. We do we do more dark meat than white. meat. Put sauce on this one?
8: Yeah. You guys amazing, huh?
10: I find that there's more more flavor in the um, dark meat. It's juicier. How many legs do you sell for every chicken breast? I don't know, but we sell, the ratio is, um damn, it's high, it's higher than, I never really check it out, but if I estimate, six, eight to one, ten to one maybe, yeah, legs over, over breast, yeah, you know, about that.
3: I got to jump in here, all respect to Wayne, but I watched him sell, oh, 200 jerk chicken pieces that night, and by my count, only one of them was a breast.
8: It's where we always keep all our poultry back here because it's even colder than it is It's a
3: here. similar story on the other side of the continent, at a grocery store called Famous Foods in East Vancouver.
8: My name is Gil Santos, and I'm the meat manager at Famous Foods. And I've been here for 15 years. In these boxes is the... Is the uh, chicken that we were this talking about. particular area here in um, East Van, anyways? Is there's a I would say about our, our clientele would be about 50% Asians, and then the ro- the rest a mix of uh, Europeans, um, Portuguese, Italians, especially Italians. Obviously, they outnumber the Portuguese by quite a bit, but they're both both uh, uh, ethnic backgrounds. They're they're. They sort of have been here in East Van for many years, right? Chinese, Filipinos a lot here too, but we're getting lots of Koreans also, uh, Vietnamese. Those would be the general ones, right? Uh, But the Chinese out by far. On the poultry, what we have, we carry a variety of cuts between wings, legs, whole birds, boneless, skinless thighs, boneless, skinless breasts. Um, which is obviously a big item in today's uh, poultry section. You have to have a lot of boneless stuff, and we also carry backs, chicken feet. Believe it or not, uh, we sell about a thousand pounds of those a week. Um, our uh, Asian market uh, clientele loves that, and so also Western European uh, people were were used to it back home, so they buy quite a bit of that. That's right. The biggest-selling
3: poultry item at Famous Foods is chicken feet, or as people in the industry call them, paws.
8: I would say 75% of the people will tell you that they prefer to have dark meat, and that's because it's just the flavoring. This thing that Gil is talking
3: about, a meat department that sells more dark meat than white, that is becoming more and more common because of changing demographics. But dark meat's reemergence isn't limited only to immigrant neighborhoods. It's turning up in major, trend-setting, food conversation-starting restaurant companies too.
6: Yeah, my name's David Chang, and uh, I'm the chef of Momofuku. I, uh, as a kid, probably my favorite dish growing up was a braised boneless chicken at a restaurant called Wu's Garden that recently closed a couple years ago. And it was a battered chicken thigh that was first marinated in Shaoxing wine, and a little bit of soy sauce and then battered, deep fried, and then braised after it was deep fried in chicken stock Shaoxing wine, a lot of scallions and garlic. And it was delicious and I I loved it. And it was never made with white meat. And one time I tried to make it myself with white meat and it was not delicious at all. I remember asking the owner why it was good. He's just like, because dark meat's more delicious. You know and ever since then as a kid I remember because I would I didn't make it at home I made my mom try to make it and it wasn't good and I first looked at my mom incredulously being like I thought you were a good cook how could you make this not so good but it wound up being that you know the owner mr. Wu said you can't make it with white meat
3: that is a life lesson isn't it yes it is David Chang from Momofuku no exaggeration this guy is one of the most influential chefs on earth A couple of years ago, David put his love of dark meat into action. He called his project Fuku.
6: Fuku was sort of our attempt to do a, um, not just an attempt anymore, it is our serious endeavor of doing a a fried chicken, or not even just a fried chicken, I think the the idea is to do a fast food concept. I grew up eating Chick-fil-A, and I just wanted to make a better version of it, and to make it delicious.
3: Other fast food chicken sandwiches, whether Chick-fil-A's or Shake Shacks or even the Mighty McChicken, almost every one of those is made either entirely or in part with white meat. David Chang had something else in mind.
6: It was a conscious choice not to serve it as a white meat sandwich because the research for Fuku in terms of when we started just to do it was probably like a couple of years. What we learned was, you know, the white meat in terms of how we wanted to cook our, our chicken wasn't as delicious as the dark meat.
3: And in the case of fuku, it made economic sense to go with dark meat, too.
6: In some ways, we were benefited because no one no one wanted to eat dark meat. We would go to farms and be like, yeah, take as much dark meat as you want.
3: <laughs> that's kind of nice.
6: Which was nice, but now that's changing rapidly as well.
3: If you subscribe to the Nobody Likes Dark Meat camp, maybe the strangest thing about fuku is how successful it's been.
6: What I didn't anticipate was people going, thankfully, as crazy as they did for it.
3: New York's food media even came up with a special term for it, fuku sanity. Paul Aho, he's not surprised.
2: I think there is a slow trend in that direction. There's certainly a powerful economic incentive to do it. And uh, the chicken tastes better, in my opinion. And if you're not afraid of the fat, I think this is going to be a slow evolution away from white meat. So, So let's say, hypothetically, that the price of dark meat rises, the price of white meat falls, this would actually improve chicken productivity because we could breed a chicken that has total meat rather than trying to breed a chicken that has just breast meat. Hmm. And we could actually produce more meat if we changed the genetic programs and went toward total meat rather than this narrow focus of white meat.
3: Okay, I know this sounds like a long shot, and I did mention that I'm a diehard dark meat guy. So, yeah, maybe, I'll admit, just maybe, there's a bit of wishful thinking here. But other unloved, unfashionable foods have bounced back, like butter. So here, I'm going to end this thing with a prediction. It could happen. Hell, it is happening. Maybe we'll even start seeing giant fast food ads on billboards and bus shelters. Now made with 100% dark meat. Oh, nothing is ever too late for, for a geneticist. Bill Muir,
1: he's already on it. Yes, you could very quickly uh, reverse the trend. You could start selecting for large legs, large thighs, and smaller breasts. And you could quickly reverse this. I would imagine within five or 10 generations, you could have an Arnold Schwarzenegger bird running around with huge thighs and legs and, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and little breasts. <laughs> I, I also wish
3: you hadn't called it Arnold Schwarzenegger because <laughs> I'm not sure that makes me hungry. <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: yeah, but I get yeah, your yeah. point. Thank you. I'm Chris Noddle Smith. From CBC, this has been The Fridge Light, Episode One White Me, Dark Me. On this episode of The Fridge Light, you heard the voices of neuroscientist Marcy Pelsha, big-time poultry economist Palaho, butcher Gil Santos, geneticist Bill Muir, David Chang, the chef of Momofuku restaurants, product developer Elspeth Copeland, food scientist Mirko Betti, jerk chicken cook Wayne Robinson and his customers at the Hot Pot Restaurant in Toronto's Little Jamaica, and my neighbor Carolyn Felstener, as well as her excellent mother Barbara. Special thanks to Barbara Felstener for deboning that chicken breast on literally no notice at all. The Fridge Light was produced by me, Chris Nottle Smith, with Paolo, Pietro Paolo, who I gotta say, you are awesome to work with. We also got a ton of help from associate producer Cecil Fernandez. Thank you, Cecil. R.F. Nurani is executive producer of CBC Original Podcast, and Leslie Merklinger is senior director of audio innovation at CBC. <laughs> Thanks as well to Chris Martin at CBC Edmonton, Will Coley in New York, Kenneth Rogers in Connecticut, Jonathan Pfeffer in Philadelphia, Rebecca Palkovics, and WBAA in West Lafayette, Indiana. Do you get tired of chicken?
1: no never because mainly because as you said um, they're the whiteboard that you can paint so you can put any flavor on them you want so you can you can marinate them you can dress them you can you know do everything with them and make them into you want them spicy you want them you know barbecued any flavor you want you can make a chicken into so I, if you get like, tired of one flavor you make it into something else and I don't have to worry about the fat content so I, I never get tired of chicken
6: Chicken, chicken chicken, butt, like Pope's nose, I think is the most underrated part of a chicken. I mean, fried chicken ass, that is, that is you can definitely say I'm, a, I'm an ass person, I'm a chicken ass person. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash
2: originalpodcasts.